Hello world, it's Sangdara and tonight I am with Subuti. Tonight we are in Nagaloka, which is a Triadna Institute in Nagpur in the center of India. And in the next few days, as we have been doing in the last few days, we've been part of a series of conference and conventions around the 60th anniversary of a mass conversion, starting with Amberka. So in a way, I don't need to explain very much because I've got a perfect man to tell you more about Ambedka and his importance in Triadna and not just in India, but in Triadna and the world. So yeah, Subutio, over to you. Who is mm-hmm. Dr. Ambedka? Mm-hmm. Yes, so thank you, Sangadara. We are here celebrating the 60th anniversary of Dr. Ambedkar's conversion with four or 500,000 people. And there's a lot of noise around us, a lot of people shouting Jai Bheem, and there are hundreds of thousands of people in the centre of, of Nagpur, probably over a million people in the centre of Nagpur, at the place where the conversion took place. So we need to locate what happened in history, and we have to go back to 1891, when uh, Bimrao Ramji Ambedkar was born an untouchable at that time, that's what he was. His father was a a non-commissioned officer in the British Army, British Indian Army, and that gave him a great deal of advantage. He was able to get a decent education. He appears to have been an extremely upright man himself, his father. He was a follower of uh, the great Indian saint Kabir. So very early on it was clear that the young Bhimrao was exceptionally intelligent and able and he was very fortunate that one of his teachers, a Brahmin teacher, noticed his potential and encouraged him, encouraged him to the point that he was able to get entry into a university, probably one of the first untouchables, we must use that horrible term because that's still what he was, Mm. and uh, get a decent basic degree, first degree. His abilities were noted by others and one of the, the Maharajas of India, you know, India had a number of princely states which were quasi-independent under British control. The Maharaja of Kolhapur was socially progressive, and it's interesting that the Maharajas were some, a few of the Maharajas were very much concerned with social social issues, for interesting reasons. But the Maharaja of Kolhapur arranged with some of his colleagues for Dr. Ambedkar to have a scholarship to go to Columbia University in New York where he got a doctorate in economics and it seems as if that had quite a big effect on him. First of all, he experienced himself simply as a human being. In America he was free, he wasn't an untouchable. And there's some evidence that he may also have noticed the beginnings of the black emancipation movement in Harlem. Harlem's not far from Columbia University apparently. So it may have had some influence on him. When he came back, or they, were, they then went to London School of Economics and studied there, wrote a further thesis, and also, in another visit, was called the bar from Gray's Inn in London. So he went back to India as a highly qualified man, and the arrangement was that he would work in the ministry, the Diwan, of the the Maharaja who'd sponsored him, the Maharaja of Baroda in Gujarat. And he was being trained to be the defence minister of the princely government. But he found that he was, he was 
not accepted by his fellow workers in the office, including the office boy, who would not give him his files directly, but throw them from the other side of the room onto his desk. And he was thrown out of a hostel, which was actually a Parsi hospital, because they discovered he was untouchable, and produced a sort of fit of deep despair in him, which led to him just deeply committing himself to the welfare of his people. If this could happen to him, a highly educated, qualified man, and clearly a very brilliant man, recognised by his own teachers in Columbia University and London School of Economics as an exceptional individual. If he could be treated like that, what was it like for landless labourers all over India, in the villages of India? So thereafter he, as well as practising as a barrister to feed himself, he worked very intensively for the social uplift of his people, working in a number of different fields, the great action of demonstrating to get the right for untouchables to drink from the town well, the Mahad tank Satyagraha, which was before Gandhi started his Satyagrahas, his uh, truth marches. After they took water from the tank, the tank was repurified by putting the five products of a cow. Just think what the five products might have been. And he returned the next year and they weren't allowed to go and get water again. And so he burnt the Manushmriti, which is the, the key social text of Orthodox Hinduism, and which really is the, sort of delimits the relations between different castes, and especially keeps, defines the place of an untouchable. So they burnt that as a dramatic and uh, symbolic gesture. He engaged in a number of other actions to try to gain temple entry in Nashik, famously. And he also engaged in labour agitation for the mill workers in Bombay. There were a lot of cotton mills in Bombay at that time. And many of the mill workers were Dalits, very poorly paid, very much exploited. And he joined forces with, with the communists to bring them out on strike and get better pay and conditions. He also formed political parties, the Scheduled Caste Federation, and newspapers, Muk Nayak, the leader of the, the Dun, became very, very active indeed, and at the same time keeping up his lawyer's occupation as a barrister in the High Court of, of Mumbai. He gained political place gained place in the, the legislature, the local legislature, and uh, fought for the rights of his people. In the period immediately before the Second World War, whilst when the Quit India movement was in full swing, he accepted an invitation to join the Viceroy's government, the Viceroy who was the King's representative in British India, and he became the Labour member of that government. Of course, it was much criticised at the time because Gandhi and Nehru and the Congress were trying to get people out of collaboration with the British. But he argued that, first of all, law and order needed to be maintained, that the British were engaged in a titanic struggle with Hitler, and that it was a far worse evil that threatened from Nazism than from the fag end of colonialism in India. And he didn't want to see the British go and simply the substitution of one set of oppressors for another mm. because it would be the upper castes who got independence but not the lower. So he worked 
with the British government. And it said that the Labour laws he established as Labour member of the cabinet, the Viceroy's cabinet, council, are still the basis for Indian Labour law today. After independence, he was invited by Nehru, Pandit Nehru, the first Prime Minister of independent India, to join the cabinet, not as a Congress member, but to join the cabinet as law minister. He was recognised as exceptionally able. It seems, and it's not, I've never seen any absolute evidence of it, that it may have been Gandhi who recognised him, even though Gandhi and Ambedkar were, in a certain sense, very much political rivals. Well, not rivals really, but even enemies, you could say, because Gandhi undermined his attempt to get political representation for untouchables on terms that would give them independence in Parliament. But Gandhi knew his worth and, it seems, suggested, even perhaps insisted, that he would be in the Cabinet. It may even have been that Lord Mountbatten, the Viceroy, had some hand in that. There's lots of different stories. So there he was, he was Law Minister, and the task of framing the new Constitution of India arose. It was a constituent assembly which was to draft a constitution for the Republic of India. And Dr. Ambedkar was drafted onto that committee and very swiftly became its chairman. And a number of the other members of the committee acknowledged that he did most of the work. And so you had the wonderful irony that an untouchable, again, to use that term for dramatic and historical purposes, wrote the constitution by which India is governed even today. That constitution was adopted in 1950, India became a republic, and it still today is governed by that same constitution, which has meant that India has remained a democracy throughout the period since independence in 1947, which is exceptional. Most of the other colonies that became free from Britain had military dictatorships or other kinds of dictatorships. India's never had that. And he continued as Labour law minister, but he tried to transform Indian family law, particularly the Hindu code as it's called, tried to change it so that women had rights, equal rights in property and so forth. But it was defeated and the government, Nehru's government, would not support it, probably for tactical reasons. Nehru himself was a progressive, but he knew that he couldn't go against the opposition. Dr. Amberg was extremely disillusioned and just abandoned politics really. He thought he'd done what he could. Back in 1936, he'd clearly declared, I was born a Hindu, that was not my choice, and I will not die a Hindu. And in a very important work called Annihilation of Caste, which Bhante referred to recently in my hearing as one of Dr. Ambedkar's most important Buddhist works, even though there's very little mention of the Buddha or Buddhist teachings, but the whole spirit of it is very much Buddhist. And so he essentially says in Annihilation of Caste that well, caste is a notion, it's a state of mind, and what mind is created, mind can undo. And he argues that in order to destroy caste, people have to get out of the religion that supports it. It's the whole ideology that supports it. So he advocated at that time a change of religion. He didn't say what it was that he was going to choose, and he said he would be thinking very carefully about it. Very obvious that he did think very carefully about it. We know that he was approached by various 
different religions offered even, rumour has it, huge amounts of money. But it's very obvious that from very early on he'd been strongly attracted by the Buddha and by the Buddhist teaching. And being an exceptionally studious and thorough man, he'd, he'd done a lot of reading and you know, knew what he was looking at and came to the conclusion by the early 1950s that the time had come to change and that this would be his last work. And he, again, finally concluded that Buddhism was the religion that he would take. He had three main grounds and possibly a fourth. First of all, that Buddhism didn't support inequality. It didn't support poverty. It supported liberty, equality and fraternity. Secondly, that it was not in conflict with science. In other words, it was reasonable. You could think, you didn't have to accept just because you were told it. And thirdly, that it did not ennoble poverty. I think you might also say it didn't justify poverty, you know, because people would argue that people are born untouchable or poor because uh, of their sins in a past life, which is, of course, not Buddhist teaching. And there's a fourth ground, which, of course, is that it's an Indian religion and therefore would not be out of the spirit of India, so to speak. So he finally decided in 1956 that he would convert. He arranged for the conversion here in Nagpur because it was central place in India, because the Dalits, that is the former untouchables, were exceptionally vigorous, and because he considered them, the Nagas, the Naga people, to be originally Buddhist. And he said that we are Nagas. They had a whole sort of theories about how untouchability came about as a result of some people remaining Buddhists long after Buddhism had disappeared and then being gradually outcast. He's got some grounds for that. So he converted and died six weeks later. A terrible tragedy. If he'd lived, the movement would have gone on and on and on much more quickly. It has gone on and on, but less quickly. Of course, Bhante met Dr. Ambedkar on three occasions and had talks with him that you can find in Ambedkar and Buddhism. And after Dr. Ambedkar's death, worked amongst the new Buddhists, no longer untouchables, helping them to understand the religion they'd embraced. And when he came back to Britain, and I remember this myself, he always mentioning the new Buddhists of India, always mentioning it. It's difficult to understand what he meant, even, because one had very little idea. But I remember one of the first retreats I went on, hearing Bhante talking to some people about the new Buddhists in India, and being very, very struck. So he took advantage in 1979, I think, of the desire of one of his leading disciples, Lokamitra, to practice yoga uh, with his, his teacher in uh, Pune. And very cunningly got him to become an Anagarika and look up some of his old friends. And Lokamitra very quickly found that he had a movement on his hands. And interestingly, he came to the Dikshabhumi on this occasion at that time, not 37 years ago or so, and then knew that he had to stay and, and work for the, the good of Buddhism. And very effectively, he managed to get things going. And the order is now well established here with more than 300, I think, 400 order members. Mm. The order is sort of self-led. Indian public preceptors, Indian private preceptors, mm. and growing very effectively. I think there's awakening throughout the movement 
to the wider significance of Dr. Ambedkar's message. There's a lot I could say about that, the relevance of that for the world, I think, Dr. Ambedkar's insight into the nature of democracy and its relationship to morality is second to none and completely new for Buddhism, because Buddhism never operated in democracy before. So this occasion is, of course, a commemoration of what happened 60 years ago. It's an inspiration to do more. Today we had conversions here at Nagaloka of about 100 people from Gujarat, Orissa, Rajasthan and other states. So new Buddhists coming in all the time from different states. The movement is gathering momentum all the time. And Tri Ratna is very, very closely connected with this. We also hope that Baba Sahib's message, Dr. Ambedkar's message, that Buddhism is not just about self-transformation, it's about world transformation, will be right in the heart of our Tri Ratna movement. Mm -hmm. So that's a brief survey, a rapid survey of the whole subject. There's so much to say, mm. but I hope that gives you some idea of the nature of this occasion. Could you say maybe just a little bit more about the power of conversion? We had some conversions here this morning, and, yeah. and in a way we are celebrating the 60th anniversary yeah. of conversion. So that seems to yeah. be quite a, quite a thing that we might find a bit difficult to understand in the West, yes, yes. but I wonder if you can yeah. get closer to the yeah. meaning of it. Well, in order to understand fully the nature of conversion in India, you have to understand the nature of a caste-based society where people are very strongly defined by their caste. Of course, we have boxes that people find themselves in in, in the West. We have class in Britain in a large way. Now the sort of race and, and so forth a major factor in many countries. But it's nothing compared with caste. A caste is much more rigid and final Caste is defined by marriage. You do not marry outside the caste. And although there's much more to it than that, you can immediately see what that does. So people's identity is bounded by their caste. And the nature of their caste, the particular caste they belong to, defines their place in the graded inequality of the caste system. So if you're born into the so-called lower castes, or right at the bottom, the lowest castes, that defines you. You've no choice in the matter, <laughs> you didn't ask to be, you're just born like that, that's who you are. That defines how you will be treated in society, it defines the details of your life, like who you'll marry and so forth. In former times it defined what work you did, still for many it does, many it doesn't, but still for many work is defined by caste. And even when nominally it's not, actually it is, most of the sewage workers in Bombay, and probably it's true in other cities, are those from castes whose their traditional duty was to deal with human waste. So caste defines you, defines your education, it defines your horizons. So if you convert, you abandon that identity, you abandon that caste status, and you identify yourself as a human being. Forget what other people think, that's another question, because caste goes on. But you yourself gain a sense of human dignity, pride, and a sense of possibility. And it's very, very striking what happens to people when they convert. Very striking indeed. We can see it in statistics even. The census shows what's happened to those who converted in 1956 and after, compared with those who didn't from comparable castes. They've outstripped them in every denominator. 
So caste has a liberating effect in a social respect. But of course social also means mental. You feel differently about yourself. You feel proud about yourself. And you gain the power to get yourself an education and to get out of the social ghetto you've been stuck in. And many have. Many still suffer in that way. So Buddhism doesn't guarantee it. But it gives people a tremendous lift. And they're very, very proud to be Buddhist in a way that's, in the West, one would feel slightly distasteful. It doesn't, it's not here, it's not at all. Uh, it's not a, a false pride or a, you know, an oppositional pride. It's just the, the pride of recovered human dignity. And even though people don't meditate and study Dhamma much, some do, but most don't, just becoming a Buddhist makes all the difference, throwing out all the gods. We had this morning a, a talk by probably one of the most prominent Buddhists in India, who's become a very high-ranking academic, very high-ranking indeed, Professor Torat, a remarkable man. And he was talking about what happened when he was seven years old and his father and uncles converted in 1956 here in Nagpur. So they came straight home and they took all the images, the images of the Hindu gods, and they ground them to powder. And from then on they felt they were free from that oppressive, superstitious influence. They stopped regarding all that. And, well, he became a very highly respected academic economist who's been an advisor to the Indian government at a very high level and was the chairman of the University Grants Commission, which controls the money supplied to universities and scholarships and so forth, and is now, I think, the chair of the uh, Indian Council of Social Science Research. He's a very distinguished man indeed, but that's where he came from. And you could say that it's because of his conversion, because of his parents' conversion, because of the release of energy that came from that, he was able to achieve what he did and still remain a very humble man who's very, very much in touch with his brothers and sisters who have been less fortunate. So, yes, conversion has a massive galvanising effect on people. Something that is struck me from you talking during the week was this Ambedkar created a constitution, so laid out the ground for oh. equality. Yes. And then the conversion is almost making people from the ground, or these untouchables, giving them the power to execute yeah. the, the constitution. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like almost like two sides of the same yes. coin. Yes, I think that's very apt. Yeah. So I wonder, I mean, there's so much, that I suppose, that we could talk about yes. this. And uh, I wonder if there's, for people that are listening to this online, what would you recommend people that don't know to start? educating themselves oh. so to learn about this area about Ambedkar conversion and yeah. the revolution in India? Well, I would strongly recommend reading Bhante's Ambedkar and Buddhism, which is really the only full survey of Dr. Ambedkar's career from a Buddhist point of view. Mm. It's, it's a quite brilliant work. I then recommend people did read Annihilation of Caste. You get something of the power of the man. It's very well written. Yeah. It's a very charged piece of writing, very cogently argued and its sort of its central understanding of the role of mind in the whole business of uh, ultimately of, of what is a just society is you know spot on and um, very very appropriate much needed in the world so i'd recommend those two books to start with I mean, if you want to read further there's so much he's written mm. so much himself the buddha and the future of his religion is very good and i noticed this morning that 
Nagaloka has just published a compilation of Dr. Ambedkar's Buddhist work, so that would be worth looking at. The Buddha and the Future of His Religion, which was published in the Mahabodhi Journal, yeah, that would be a very good source of information. Ambedkar and Buddhism, I think, start there, mm. and you'll find your way into other things. Mm. 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 Let me just say a little bit more about the Constitution. There are two aspects of the Constitution that are worth commenting on. First of all, that Dr. Ambedkar put in the preamble of the Constitution the principles of liberty, equality, fraternity and justice. And he said on another occasion that he derived these principles, liberty, equality and fraternity, from his master, the Buddha. One has to do some work to work out how, but it's quite easy to see how in the end. In the Constitution, it's a very good basic liberal democratic constitution, which is equivalent to anything, anywhere. But into it he wrote special provision for the protection of communities that had been marginalised by giving them special reserved places in education, in politics. They had reserved seats, although not on the basis that he wanted it, and in government, government service. A certain proportion of government jobs have to go to the depressed, so-called depressed or backward communities. So that means that it's possible because of these constitutional guarantees, and it'd be very difficult to change that, that a bright young Dalit, like, for instance, the remarkable Professor Torat, gets a good education, gets his foot into the educational profession, and is able by his own sheer talent to rise to the very top so that the constitution written by Dr. Ambedkar and the previous provisions that he'd established meant that it's very, very difficult to stop Dalits getting into positions of authority, for instance, police chiefs and so forth. Although there are many barriers still, and there's even something of a backlash these days, it's still not possible to stop Dalits from being in influential positions, and this is because of Dr. Ambedkar. But what the relationship is between the Constitution and conversion is a little deeper still. He famously said in the Constituent Assembly that he didn't want the Constitution. Having written it and got it established, there's a mood of despair at this refusal to pass the Hindu Code Bill. He famously said, the Constitution is like a beautiful temple that we've built for some god to descend and live in, and is being occupied by a devil. So he saw that essential relationship between constitution and the moral quality of the electorate. And I believe this is relevant everywhere, <laughs> probably in Mexico too, <laughs> certainly in Britain. Yeah. The moral quality of the electorate determines the moral quality of the politicians. We get the politicians we deserve, and we get the policies that we deserve. So he saw conversion as working at a deeper level to establish a just society by creating uh, an ideology, to call it that, a view in Buddhist terms, a Dhamma, that would support morality, which would then support a moral a choice in the electorate and moral politicians or representatives. So I think it's extremely important that conversion, in whatever terms you like to talk of it, requires the constitution to support it, because then the conversion can be played out fully 
gives people the strength and the courage and the new idea of themselves to take advantage of the opportunities the Constitution gives. The Constitution, without that moral conversion, is just, well, what democracy is increasingly becoming in many parts of the world, competing interests and the domination of populist, rightist politicians who are basically moving in a quasi-fascist direction. And I think Dr. Ambedkar's message in that respect is relevant everywhere. We have to see the relationship between politics, constitution and morality. It's not the job of government to create morality. So whose job is it? Well, brothers and sisters, it's yours and mine. It's a very challenging, practical note to end. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much.